Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by HBO and the new documentary series, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 17th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about a rising athlete revolution against the sports press, including Kevin Durant telling the media at the NBA All-Star Game, you guys really don't know shit. Explicit warning needed within eight seconds. Didn't e- the shot clock didn't even expire on that one. Uh, we'll also discuss the decision by Little League to strip Chicago's Jackie Robinson West of its 2014 U.S. title due to violations of residency requirements. And Slate columnist Dan Ingber will come on the show to discuss the art and science of discombobulating opposing free throw shooters and the latest innovation therein, Arizona State's Curtain of Distraction. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll ruminate on Last Man, a contest in which contenders vie to go for as long as they can without learning who won the Super Bowl. Joining me in Washington, D.C. as a man who knows the final score of the Super Bowl, we'll not reveal it out of respect but it's Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. I'd like to think of him as the first man. Not the last man. First man. The alpha man as opposed to the <laughs> omega man? 
<laughs> right, that's right. I'm I'm Heston Charlton. First of all, if the show had started with not just a language warning but an Engber warning, then we could have both of those things early on. Second of all, I'd like to note that I am among a small coterie of players who is trying to be the last man standing to understand why people like Arby's. That is a monumental task, a, a mountain of meat of tasks. I just wanted to share with you guys that it was a really up and down weekend for the Levines. Okay, go ahead. Zach Levine, maybe one of the great Levine moments of all time, winning the mm-hmm. slam dunk contest. He might have even won the slam dunk contest of slam dunk contests. Over Vince the Carter. The all-star slam dunk yeah. contest, you think? Over Spud Webb? Um, Hard to overcome those sympathy votes. Also, <laughs> what was his name? D. Brown. D. Brown. D. Brown. Pumping up his Nikes. That, that, was, that was a great one. Yeah. I think Vince is the greatest just slam dunker, but all the stuff around it. Yeah. D and Spud. But then uh, Philip Levine died. The poet laureate, former poet laureate. Mm-hmm. Up and down weekend. How did Philip Levine spell his name? L-E-V-I-N-E. So the wow. only one to spell it conventionally was the one whose job allows him unconventional spelling. <laughs> Zach Levine has an uppercase V, which I think I might adopt. There's no way that you – I mean, I'm sure that you have Levine pronounced wrong as your name is L-E-V-I-N more than Zach Levine does. But, I mean, that's no way to, spe- to pronounce his name. That's his shouldn't be pronounced like that. <laughs> Um, well, you should just go lowercase, Josh. All lowercase. Bell hooks Levine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Levine, while we while Levine. we ponder these incredibly self indulgent Levine related <laughs> matters, it's just just like the media, isn't it? To just focus on themselves instead of on you know the like minded individuals, the great players of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, during the All Star Weekend in New York, Kevin Durant had a mini Howard Beale moment. On Saturday, a scrum of media members asked the Thunder player about the team's coach, Scott Brooks, whether his job might be in jeopardy, given that the team is currently in ninth place in the Western Conference standings. Durant's reply, you guys really don't know shit. He later added in a slightly less pithy and more verbose variation of what Marshawn, I'm just here so I won't get fined Lynch, said at Super Bowl Media Day. To be honest, man, I'm only here talking to y'all because I have to. So I really don't care. Y'all are not my friends. You're going to write what you want to write. You're going to love us one day and hate us the next. Uh, we're not quite at the level, Mike, of every professional athlete in every sport standing up at his locker and shouting, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to talk to you just clad in my towel anymore. Um, but this does feel to me like a, a little bit of a start of a movement. Do you uh, think so? Do you agree? Well, I guess because it's Durant saying it, normally how athletes deal with that is to go into uh, Shaq mumble mode. Well, you know, I really can't talk about that. And that's just a defense mechanism. There are aspects to how players are interviewed, especially in the huge settings like an all-star game. That is much, much less than optimal. But what are the solutions? And one of the reasons for the All-Star Game and putting these guys forward is to let media of all stripe, even the ones that Ramona Shelbourne or big-time journalists think shouldn't be credentialed, get to ask a question or two. It's a legitimate enough question. It's an uncomfortable answer. You're getting paid $12 million to answer the question. I don't think money has anything to do with it. Yeah, talking to the media is part of the job of professional athletes, and it's the job of media members to ask questions that may not align with the answers that athletes want to deliver. And this is 
This is just a function of the two different jobs that are taking place. Reporters on deadline ask a lot of questions that to athletes seem idiotic. What happened? What were you feeling? But those questions serve the larger purpose for the reporter to apply context and understanding to what has transpired. The problem is that the way that players think about and play games, they make hundreds of split second decisions that are gone instantly. I mean, they don't really ponder them once they are done. That's completely at odds with how reporters need to think about and explain games, which is to reexamine and repeat what has happened. Those run counter to each other. There will be conflict. The athlete hates answering the same questions. The questions sound stupid, but they serve a purpose. There's really no, I think, solution to this, other than some of the ones that Ramona Shelburne suggested in a long string of tweets about this subject. Well, yeah. So she says, um, you alluded to this, Mike, that at All-Star Games, at Super Bowls, there are a lot of people credentialed to these games that um, normally aren't. And, you know, you've probably been in more press conferences than than either of us, Mike, at least in recent years. And I agree with what Shelburne said. She's a writer for ESPN.com. She's a really good basketball writer. She noted that the people that ask questions in these scrum-type settings are exactly the people who are not being thoughtful and are not particularly interested in getting to know players on a personal basis. They're doing it because they're grandstanding. They're doing it because, um, I, I guess I was about to just say grandstanding in other terms. They just want to hear their own voice. Like a good reporter is not going to want to ask an interesting question in a press conference or in a locker room surrounded by 10 other people. I always because- waited I because mean, I always waited, Mike. I don't know about you, but I, I would rarely they don't want ask everybody else. They don't conference. want everybody else to hear their question, and right. they also just know that it's not going to elicit a thoughtful response from a player. And, you know, Stefan, you're talking about um, players are like this and the, the media are like this. And in general terms, I think that's right, that, you know, talking about the adversarial mm-hmm. positions. But there's obviously a continuum on both sides, that there are reporters who do a good job asking even those kinds of perfunctory questions. Sure. And there are ones who are just assholes and are asking dumb or questions. Or just not very are... good at their jobs or have jobs that don't require a level of depth and research and communication and relationship building that other reporters might bring to the task. And there are also, athle- there are also athletes who don't want to talk to the media for thoughtful reasons because they feel like they'll be misrepresented. And there are also athletes who are just jerks and will – you know, in the locker room, will want to show up reporters, want to mock reporters, will want to put them in their place and just be Spray bullies. bleach on reporters. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think it's important to remember that, that, that we're not talking about like the reporter as one species and the athlete as another. Well, that's right. I think that it's unfair to say that in the scrum setting, you always get the bad questions. I almost, I, I never had a chance to interview Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, or Kevin Durant in something other than a big group mm-hmm. setting. And even when they do the media availabilities after their, you know, on court shootouts during the finals, you'll have 40 people around these guys. You can get a question in, but it's quite a luxury to be able to ask a question one on one. Kevin Durant's not going to ask my question, answer my question. So I, every, Every time I ever asked one of these huge name Durant-esque players, it was exactly in that situation. And I wasn't grandstanding. I wasn't asking a stupid question. So it might be great for Ramona Shelbourne to say, oh, only the reporters on the level of ESPN, only the reporters who maybe are beat reporters should be asking the questions because they know how to ask the questions. No, that's not what the game is about. That's not I, – I mean the media game. I mean, sure, there will be some stupid, idiotic questions, but you have to take the good with the bad. And by the way, 
way. In the official press conferences, there are often stupid, idiotic questions from the very people Mm -hmm. who are credentialed. I, I mean, yeah, in general, I think beat reporters often earn their jobs because they're good, so you'll get a better question there. And also they have a rapport, so you'll get a better question there. But there's tons of stupid questions from beat reporters and tons of really good questions from out of the blue, maybe from, you know, some outlet we wouldn't have expected it. So many of the great stories I think that we read when it's someone who um, is not the usual beat reporter got an answer, got a Q&A. Josh, you've probably edited many people who were able to uh, get quotes only from doing it in the group setting. So I think the main thing is that Kevin Durant did not like being – he's right. Much of the media is stupid. But Kevin Durant did not like being asked about this sensitive subject, which is the fact that his coach is holding him back and or holding the team back. And Scotty Brooks is – you know, it's it's got to be very uncomfortable. He doesn't want to have to answer it a thousand times. Uh, maybe it's wrong to ask it a thousand times, but it's a legitimate enough question. Well, look, you know, he was also hurt. Is not he was necessary. also hurt this year. He was frustrated last year. The Oklahoman ran a headline calling him Mister Unreliable, for which the newspaper later apologized. I'm sure there is some level of frustration that builds up even in a player like Kevin Durant. But what I think was most interesting about his comments were at one point he said, "I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm just this guy that got programmed to say." the right stuff all the time and politically correct answers. I'm done with that. The implication there is that somebody was telling him, his agent, the PR guys at the Thunder, um, his financial manager was telling him that you should try to cultivate a personality of being a good guy and not speaking your mind, not being honest, not being thoughtful. A lot of athletes in this and this sort of media training that they get are taught to answer perfunctorily the are taught cliche thing right and they, they actually believe that this is the simplest way to get through dealing with the media and 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 offer up some anodyne comments that don't get anybody in trouble and won't create any sort of controversy around the player. The mystery to me is why athletes believe this. Why do they believe that they shouldn't be honest and open and forthright about what it takes to play the game and how they feel when they're playing it and actually set you know, and actually teach journalists and then the public what it's like to play the sport. Um, it's not that athletes resent the media per se. It's that they don't really understand how it works and how it could be used to their benefit if they were simply sort of honest. Um, I, you dis- know, the, I totally disagree really? with that. Yeah, because it it makes sense to be anodyne, but exactly for the reason that anything you say can be taken out of context and can turn into a big story. Well, you assume that everything that you say is going to be somehow controversial. I mean, there's no, a, there's a, a middle if ground. One thing by w- if one thing you say is controversial and one reporter takes it, then it gets on the ESPN ticker and it becomes a big thing. Um, it doesn't take... And that's why I wanted to walk back what I said initially because, Mike, what you said made me think about this differently and obviously you're correct. It's that what happens is that athletes take the dumbest question and the dumbest media member, the most antagonistic, the most unfair, and they use that as a stand-in for the entire apparatus. And we all do that. Like if if I get a negative comment on a story or if any journalist does, then you'll take that as all comment sections are stupid. Or just that, you know, reader the readers don't get this or just you you take the worst possible example 
and you blow it up. And criticizing the media is just a, a solid move for anyone. You know, if an athlete comes out and says that the press is stupid and that you guys don't know shit, like the general public is is going to respond to that message. And, you know, the saying used to be, don't go after somebody who buys ink by the barrel. Like we're all swimming in ink now. Um, you know, every publisher, the number one traffic source is Facebook. Guess who else is on Facebook? It's, you know, athletes have their own sites. Everything has been flattened out. If you have a strong social media presence, you don't need to be on ESPN. You don't need to be interviewed mm-hmm. by, you know, the Topeka Daily or whatever. Um, and, you know, there are stories in the Players' Tribune, that Derek Jeter thing. Andrew McCutcheon wrote about the Jackie Robinson West Little League, which we're going to talk about in a minute. DeAndre Jordan wrote on Medium about not being picked as an all-star. These people don't need to deal with the media. Think about someone like Royce White, who we had on the show, and his social media platform and, and his advocacy. And don't, you know, Kevin Durant, I, I don't think, is a hothead and maybe had one momentary tweet where he's like, oh, this is bullshit. But a lot of guys don't, right? A lot of guys, I, okay, I don't want to say Derek Jeter because maybe he is the ne plus ultra. But guys, we don't even, Chris Bosh, is he universally known as this wonderful guy with the media? He kind of is. He he never. He was um, called Princess Bosh by Skip Bayless. And... Yeah, he wouldn't lash out like that. I mean, every college No, he coach... did. He was really pissed at Skip Bayless. And that was a whole big thing for his entire first year in Miami was how he was soft and how he was the reason they didn't win. Yeah, no, but uh, haha, but that was to the one person. <laughs> he always made himself if you ask the people who covered the heat, Chris Bosch was always guarded but available. Wow. So you just you know, have, I think this is you have to I just take it and understand what the game is. Is that what you're saying? I, I, that's what I think. I, I think it's not that. I don't think it's that hard to navigate. I have no idea what it's like to be Kevin Durant. But a, I told I uh, misstated his salary by fifty percent. It is seventeen million dollars. It doesn't seem like really that hard a thing. He's being asked at an All Star game about the job status of his coach, which you have to know is a question you're going to get. The smartest athletes are the ones that figure out how to answer the quotidian bullshit questions, but also the ones that find a way to turn some of those questions into lo- into longer lens type answers. How is the sport played? What's the strategy? Skill sets, physical and mental preparation. There are ways to answer a question about your coach without lashing out, but also without saying, you know, that's between management and, you know, we love Scotty and we're going to do our best for Scotty. There are ways to do this. You know, Derek Jeter, you brought up, I mean, his aloofness insulated him in a lot of ways. It made him seem like he was, you know, some larger sports and cultural figure than he actually was. But at the same time, I think for a lot of fans, it made him seem not particularly perceptive, not particularly smart, not particularly, you know, thoughtful about the game as it's played. And there's no more popular baseball player of the last three decades. So that's my question. What are the negative consequences? Like, Russell Westbrook, Durant's teammate, says in the locker room to a reporter in a scrum, I don't like you. That's why I'm not answering your questions. Durant lashes out here. That's going to have absolutely no negative effect. Marshawn Lynch might be the most popular player in the league. What an amazing career move for him in terms of his Mm -hmm. popularity, just to treat the media with complete indifference and disdain. So if you're talking about, you know, this is going to help them if they're more open and honest. I think that's not that's But Marshawn not Lynch is being open and honest in some ways. He's he's making a statement about the system 
And maybe the system changes because some reporter then figures out a better way to approach Marshawn Lynch. And maybe it's the way Ramona Shelburne suggested, you know, find a moment when you can approach him, introduce yourself, use your name. Don't treat him like some commodity. And I think there is some you know, justification on the part of the athlete to feel like they are commodified when it comes to the press. Look, that's how the system is created, too, Mike. I mean, you know this as well as anybody. You know, the locker room door opens, you're on deadline, you got to get someone to say something. And you're the third guy to ask. I mean, that was the most amazing thing when I started covering sports. I just one day sat next to David Wright's locker for an entire open interview session. Same question seven times. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what these guys do is kind of amazing and something that no mortal human being does. But uh, for $17 they could do it, and they shouldn't get that upset about it. Well, we should should wrap this up. But I just wanted to make two (laughs) quick points. Very self-indulgent of me. Let's wrap this up (laughs) after I talk. Um, Royce Young, uh, Kevin Draper and Deadspin highlighted something that Royce Young, who writes about the Thunder, he had written about... Russell Westbrook and about how Westbrook showed up a reporter in the locker room in front of everyone telling a reporter he can't sit in a chair because that's the player's chair. And it's just I'm kind of defending a player's rights to not talk to the press Mm -hmm. and to even say you don't know shit or just say whatever they want. But like there is a line where players behave in a way that's just not respectful. Like you can you can. I think you can actually treat reporters with disdain, but like a more respectful disdain. But I've, you know, I've witnessed behavior in locker rooms where you're just like, dude, that's just not a very nice way to be to another human being, even if you like don't like them or agree with what they're doing. And so Westbrook, it's, I think, maybe falls into that category sometimes. Um, one other thing to say, Durant, I think it was a week prior, said the media shouldn't vote for awards. And that's really the last I think vestige of power that the press has is that they vote for the MVP. They vote for the Hall of Fame. Um, You know, Kevin Durant doesn't need the press to get his message out. He doesn't need the press to burnish his fame, but he does need the press. I mean, he did win the MVP award, but it's like that's the last thing that we're clinging on to is that is these awards. I don't know if that's going to change, but that still gives the the press a little bit of power. Tiny bit, a little bit, tiny bit, a little bit. A little bit. All right. Hang up and listen is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. It's a new documentary series from HBO. It spans four decades, and the subject is three murders and one very rich man who's refused to speak until now. Uh, Andrew Jarecki is the filmmaker. He did Capturing the Freedmans, which is a fantastic documentary if you want to look that up. It's uh, been compared to The Staircase, which is one of my uh, favorite multi-part true crime documentaries. I'm into the true crime thing. Working on my Welfare Queen book. I'm in the true crime mode. Uh, The Jenks is a six-part series. Um, But if you call it true crime, aren't they saying he's guilty? Anyway. (laughs) It's true alleged crime. Allegedly true crime. There are true crimes, but we don't know if this this guy did it. Does that work? Mm -hmm. There are murders. The crime was true. The crime was true. Robert Durst did he do it? That's the subject of the Jenks. Six parts on HBO. Uh, Sundays at 8 o'clock. Slate's Willa Paskin loves it. You'll probably love it too. 8 p.m. on HBO. The Jenks, the life and deaths of Robert Durst. Okay, last summer, Chicago's Jackie Robinson West Little League won the U.S. title at the Little League World Series before falling to South Korea in the championship game. Along with Monet Davis's standout pitching performance, the triumph of this all-black team was hailed as a just amazing feel-good story at a time 
when African-American participation in baseball seems to shrink every year. Uh, Chicago Cubs players wore Jackie Robinson West jerseys. The city hosted a parade for the players. They visited the White House. Um, And now comes the sad trombone portion of the introduction. Last week, Little League Baseball stripped the team of its U.S. championship for using players outside its geographic area. And this was no accident. Uh, According to ESPN.com, Jackie Robinson West used a falsified boundary map and team officials met with neighboring Little League districts to claim players and build what amounted to a super team. The president and CEO of Little League International told ESPN, we feel horribly for the kids who are involved with this. No one should cast any blame, any aspersions on the children who participated on this team. The adults, it seems like, Stefan, are another matter. Yeah, all the adults, not just the Jackie Robinson West adults who uh, changed boundaries to get some kids onto the team that might not have been eligible otherwise. And we don't know how many kids and we don't know which kids and we don't really know much about exactly what transpired. But how about the guy that ratted them out? It was a coach of a team that lost 43 to 2 to the Jackie Robinson West team and personally started looking up addresses and phone numbers and registration reports. Like the- a lot of this was reported in the local Chicago press. We should give credit to uh, Mark mm-hmm. Conkle, DNAinfo.com. This was a story back in December originally, and Little League said, we've looked into it, and it's totally fine. Everything is has checked out. And the DNAinfo.com report is like, no, a lot of these players don't live in this district. Let me, let me, amend. On- let me amend there. The Chicago Tribune said that the losing coach began to research the players' backgrounds using public records, voting registration records address listings and found that four or five of the players apparently lived should, outside of the I boundaries. I should get this guy to help me with research yeah. in the Chicago Sounds stuff in my good, book. Yeah. And he could coach a little league team for you. <laughs> um, just everything that you really need out of a, an adult male in Chicago. Mike, do you think there are any kind of broader lessons about this story? Well, at first I was saying to myself, uh, I hate to have the m- most obvious take, but what do I can't believe adults would do this, although I can. Uh, what do they think they're going to get out of it? The more success you have, it seems like destined to implode because the more success you have, the more you risk having no success at all because this whole thing is exposed. And then Dave Zirin wrote a piece about mostly gentrification and about how it is um, a scandal and a shame to take these kids' trophy away from them because everything they've done is a consequence of the realities of baseball in the inner city. Now, Dave, and then there was a backlash to that in Deadspin. Do you have that author's name? Yeah, Daniel K. Hertz. Daniel K. Hertz, who is uh, who studies these issues and knows a little about baseball, I thought pretty fairly took apart Zyron's argument about gentrification, which was in the headline of the piece, which was cited uh, a couple times, and he quoted at length from the piece about gentrification being the opponent of being able to have a cohesive community that can follow the rules of Little League by pointing out there is no gentrification in Chicago South Side. Zyron hit back by saying it wasn't about gentrification. It was about these underlying issues. So let's separate the fact that Zyron kind of argued from the polemicist standpoint, he does raise some decent issues, some things I hadn't thought about. Perhaps his phrasing is a bit too far, like the conclusion, it is a shame what they've done to the kids, that these kids weren't cheating, they were cheated by the system. Okay, 
I'm not going to come to those conclusions. But he does raise some really good th- material to think about how in the suburbs, having uh, a coherent community that plays around a grassy infield is one thing. And in the inner city, especially Chicago, schools being shut down, very hard to find an actual baseball diamond. You do what you can to sort of cobble together a community. It opened my eyes a bit. Yeah, I think that there are good issues raised there. The problem with it is that all of this boundary changing just seems to have been designed to win the Little League World Series. Yeah. So <laughs> Right, not to rectify social injustices, yeah. So this Little League, if they play in the proper boundaries, it's a really strong organization. They have really great players. They did really well in the region, and that is a success story. These kids were, you know, into baseball. They played really well together as a team. There was a community around them. They probably learned valuable life lessons, uh, you know, before the whole boundary swapping thing. But it's not written in the, you know, rules anywhere that the only way to be a feel-good story is to win the U.S. championship at the Little League World Series. And that's where I think the adults screwed up and got their priorities out of whack. It's like having a great local, you know, neighborhood Little League is a great story putting together a team from surrounding areas to make it to the Little League World Series, that will get you more attention and it will become a quote-unquote great story. Well, it's been a great story in this Little League for like 30 years. I mean, yeah, Jackie made Robinson the Little West World made Series. the World Series yeah. final in 1983 and through the benevolence of a couple of people, particularly in, in those neighborhoods, it has been a thriving baseball program. There's also some gray area here. I mean, there was one person quoted by the Tribune, the head of a, a neighboring Little League, which decided not to field an all-star team. So, so he said that it was totally justified to have some of their players join the Jackie Robinson team. There's also kind of an everybody is doing it argument that this happens everywhere, but the Little League rarely, if ever, investigates. The Little League investigative arm is, I think, more ineffectual than the, than the NCAA. Yeah, well, it's about snitches, basically. You have well, they're also all 12 years league. old. It's not really a fair comparison. <laughs> well, they can't get very far on their but, bicycles. And, you know, the entire apparatus... Carmen Sandiego. The entire apparatus is so nebulous and impossible to, to define and regulate. Um, you know, boundaries for these organizations are going to vary widely from community to community, from town to town. Some little leagues are going to draw on a pool of hundreds and hundreds of players and others aren't. I mean, there's no way to really, you know, create parity in little league because our cities and towns aren't built with parity in mind. The larger social question is, is this unfair because this is an African-American little league that is being investigated and being suspended when we don't know to what extent other little leagues do similar things? Yeah, but, you know, I'm, I do come down on the side of though my eyes were opened and there are some mitigating details, it is cheating. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's cheating because it's against the rules. I'm saying it's cheating in a way that's different from forging a, uh, a residency to get into a good school rather than a bad school, right? It's cheating because... Because, like Josh said, had they followed the rules, they would have had quite a fine team. And what they wanted to do was subvert the rules to have this super mega team. And the real reason that it's an unethical and immoral act is 
it exposes the kids. It makes this experience into a terrible experience mm -hmm. because right. parents wanted to go so far as to have an all-star team. It is not the case. You can't make the case that, but for doing this, there would be no inner city Chicago representation. Like Josh said, they'd have a very good team. A core of that team really was, you know, in the contention to whatever, make it to regionals, to do good, to do what we all want ideally out of Little League. And what the parents did was create this mega team and ultimately hurt the kids. Is the system hurting the kids? Is America and the inner city hurting the kids? Yeah, but so are the parents. We're all hurting the kids. So are the parents. Don't so is the, the entire youth sports industrial complex. I mean, where does this notion come from? Yeah, some of it comes from innate. Carl Ravitz. Well, so, some of it comes from sort of innate human behavior. We want to win. We want to put together the best team. Ah, it would be great for these kids if we were a little bit better. You know, give them yeah. an opportunity. They, they got to go to the White House, otherwise. dude. No, I mean, but, I mean, before, like when we're structuring this team, you know, hey, if we had these two or three kids, well, our chances of giving these kids an even better opportunity would be enhanced. But where does all this come from? It comes from, you know, the nature of our culture when it comes to youth sports, trying to get the biggest kid. I'm going to do my after ball about Friday Night Tyke season two. Um, you know, one of the teams Ooh. brought in like after some tease. five foot eight, 150 pound, <laughs> 11 year old running back and he's dominating. Well, no kidding. He's dominating because it's not fair. But what is travel sports and what is, you know, the, the notion that these that the outcomes of these games matter so deeply to people. That's what's screwed up, that we care so much about who wins and who loses these essentially forgettable games. Well, it, it's easy for me to say, sitting here, Whitey McWhitenstein, that this isn't about race, but I don't think this is about race. I don't think it's about race either. Because every week, at least, there's a story about a coach getting super-duper pissed off about the other coach running up the score. And when you lose 43-2, yeah. to two, that's when this guy started digging. Mm -hmm. He didn't start digging because he's like, look at all these uh, black kids that are winning in baseball. He's like, look at all these kids who just beat my ass 43-2. to two. America hates running up the score. But when you add all of this up, Mike, get to, you get a parade. Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago, says, we're still going to give these kids rings. championship rings. Rings, because you know what kids need? They need rings. We're going to the White House. You know, you say that this is really bad because of how it exposes the kids. Kids are still heroes. I think, add it all up, the coach is like, this was a, this is a good thing. The kids, they got, they got way more out of it than they lost. And everybody sympathizes with the kids. What this about, the, what about the, kids. the four or five kids that know they came from this, these out-of-bounds little leagues? They got a ring, baby. You know, to, <laughs> quote, to quote the bard, fair is foul and foul is fair. Drop the mic. A little, little bard ref to, to end the segment. Um, I want to say a few words now about Slate Plus, our membership program, where for $5 a month or $50 a year, you can get Mike Pesca to come to your house mm -hmm. and quote from any uh, Shakespeare play that Titus you like. Sonnets, sonnets are extra. <laughs> uh, you can also get extra segments on this podcast, as well as the Political and Culture Gab Fest, uh, as well as special members-only podcasts, early access to events, all sorts of other good stuff. One member perk is you get early access to a podcast discussion of The Walking Dead, hosted by our very own producer, Mike Volo. I'm looking at him right now. I can just tell he's thinking about The Walking Dead. He's thinking about very smart things to say about the show. He does have his legs crossed. He looks very <laughs> contemplative. The zombie apocalypse, I've been told by Mike Volo, is the best apocalypse. You might be able to get other apocalypses as a Slate Plus member, but you definitely get the best 
podcast ever made about the zombie apocalypse. Mike Volo and Chris Wade. Uh, to get Slate Plus, to get the Walking Dead podcast, go to slate.com slash plus. Then our bosses will know that you have signed up due to your ardor for Hang Up and Listen. That is slate.com slash plus. On Saturday, Valentine's Day, the front page of the New York Times featured stories on the escalating conflict in East Ukraine, a police shooting in Brooklyn, and gay marriage in Alabama. And then at the bottom, center of A1, a piece by Justin Wolfers of the Times' Upshot blog with the headline, Bad Free Throw? Blame the Twerking Livestock. On the web, the piece carries the more prosaic headline, How Arizona State Reinvented Free Throw Distraction. The answer to that, as Wolfers explains, is via a mechanism called the Curtain of Distraction. When opponents of the Arizona State men's basketball team step to the free throw line, members of the Sun Devil student section pull back a black curtain to reveal a bizarre tableau, one that occasionally features people in unicorn masks in various stages of undress. Other scenes include a guy dressed as Santa holding a guy dressed as an elf, an old lady shaking her cane, a cow waving streamers, a dude pretending to slalom ski, and a shirtless guy in yellow shorts rocking out on a pink guitar. In his piece, Wolfers, who is an economist at the University of Michigan, argues that the curtain gives Arizona State an advantage of one to two points a game. Here to discuss the statistical significance of twerking unicorns is Slate columnist Dan Ingber. Hello, Dan. Hello. Uh, Mike and Stefan, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to voir dire this witness as to the extent of his expertise. (laughs) I'll allow it. Mr. Ingber, in what way are you an expert in free throw distraction. Well, one of my very first pieces for Slate, possibly my first piece ever for Slate, I contacted Mark Cuban and convinced Mark Cuban to change the free throw distraction technique for the Dallas Mavericks. This was in the 2004 to 2005 season. Back when can Mark you, Cuban answered on all emails. Yes, expand. So in, in uh, I was, a at that time, a recent grad school dropout in neuroscience and uh, I had been studying motor control, and I had this idea for how fans could more effectively distract free-throw shooters using the tools of neuroscience. And I wrote to Mark Cuban, suggested that he, had the, he would have the fans um, wave their thunder sticks in unison, changing direction at the moment that the player was releasing the ball. Cuban loved the idea and uh, put it in play for at least a week, maybe more like a month, and then he told me that it wasn't working and the idea sucked and that he was never going to do it again. I maintain that there was not enough time to determine if there was an effect, but at any rate, it seems like if there had been an effect, the league would have banned it and fined Cuban, so maybe that's what was going on. Since right, explain explain the science game. behind this, Dan, please. And also explain like whether the curtain, after, after your explanation of your science, is the curtain of distraction, is there any scientific <laughs> support for, for the unicorns? And also explain if you deserve points for the creation of Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the, uh, what people typically do in the NBA or for many years have done is wave their thunder sticks randomly. That kind of makes a field of white noise that is very easy for the shooter to ignore. I mean, it's just like shooting into a sea of random motion. So my idea that I sent to Cuban was, well, if you have everyone move together, that could actually create some kind of illusion of movement on the part of the shooter. So the shooter might feel like he's drifting to the right if all of the thunder sticks are moving in that direction or moving in the opposite direction. So that was the idea. 
I don't know, again, I don't know if it worked. I, as for the science of the curtain of distraction, I don't think that's neuroscience so much as psychology. <laughs> They're just trying to surprise the shooter with something interesting. The expert witness he, is trying to disqualify himself. <laughs> <laughs> something that he really wants to see, like unicorns making out. First of all, Josh, you should have prefaced that with spoiler alert because I didn't know that they were people in unicorn masks. I thought there was a possibility. <laughs> Second of all, I think we need to not just focus on if the shooter is distracted, but how it affects in-game strategy. For instance, I think opposing teams are so desirous to see what's going to come out from that <laughs> curtain that they opt for the foul instead of the clearer path to the basket. They're drawing a foul just so they can see what's behind the curtain. That's right. They'd have, they'd have a clear slam dunk, but they slow down to get fouled from behind, missing the shot and maybe only going one It's like the price the is right. No, there should be three different curtains, like in Let's Make a Deal. Then we could have the players try to solve the Monty Hall problem. There could be goats and unicorns. It could be just very interesting. Wouldn't they be incentivized to hit the first half of a one-on-one so they would get the second <laughs> chance to see what's behind the curtain. That's a great point. That's, right. so that, that's a good segue into what is the I data show. I also think missing the first half of a one-on-one should be called a zonk, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what is the data show? Wolfers and, and his piece, Stan, argues that this is worth one to two points a game. Like, what is his evidence for that? Well, I think a bunch of Arizona State fans got excited about their own curtain and, <laughs> um, and started talking about how Opponents were shooting worse in the second half than in the first half this season. Because in the second half, they're facing the curtain. They go into the student section only in the second half of games. Right. So Wolfers, who uh, is an economist not particularly interested in basketball, but he has done a lot of really good studies of you know, statistics and sports, referee bias and that sort of thing. So he starts looking at the data, and he finds that Starting last season and continuing to this season, opponents visiting Arizona State have been doing a lot worse while at Arizona than they have while on the road in other schools. So he concludes that this is very good evidence that the curtain of distraction is working. And what do you think after looking at the data? We looked at the numbers about uh, first half versus second half. We looked at how Arizona State um, does in distracting good opponents and bad opponents. So, so kind of summarize what that additional uh, research shows. The original thing that the Arizona State fans had identified is, look, uh, the opposing teams are shooting worse in the second half than the first half. And they noticed before they started the curtain of distraction two seasons ago, opposing teams were actually shooting better in the second half, that for all their efforts in the student section, they were, I guess, helping opponents. So that was their first data point. But when we looked at uh, last year, so this is after they started using the curtain of distraction, if you compare first half and second half free throw shooting, it's pretty close. It, I think it's even a little bit higher. The, the opposing teams are doing a little bit better in the second half. They're about even. There isn't much of a difference there. So that, that was suspicious. That struck me as evidence that maybe the curtain of distraction isn't doing anything at all, which wouldn't be surprising because, you know, all of the data I'd ever looked at suggests that free throw distractions just don't really work. But as you as you mentioned to Cuban, there seems to be some free throw distractions that don't work less than others. And I would say that the black curtain at least comports with the best practices of almost working free throw distraction, <laughs> no? Well, just to be clear, in, in the NBA, 
free throw distraction just does not work at all. Back when I wrote that article for Slate in 2005, I looked at the whole league and compared free throw shooting at home and on the road, and it was the same to within a thousandth of a percentage point. So it has zero effect in the NBA. Now, as it happens, Justin Wolfers has looked in college and Division One basketball, and he has a... Uh, 25,000 games in his data set, and he said there's about a 1% difference. So free throw distraction does work in college. So that's the, that's a really interesting... If you believe that that 1% difference is due to free throw distraction and not because they feel some additional pressure being on the... I mean, it could be some other factor, right? Situational or just generally being on the road is harder regardless of whether someone is standing up and... and They've and had to travel in a their, bus, their so legs what he, hurt... What he, he did is he compared um, free throw shooting at home as a visiting team and in a neutral site. So neutral site shooting in a neutral site and at home is the same. Um, shooting on the road, you do one percent worse. So it's true that might not be because people are waving their arms or or pulling aside a curtain of distraction. It might be just crowd noise or uh, generally feeling unloved by those around you. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that this is it's not just that you drove somewhere to get there or you're not, you know, in the gym where you practice. So something is going on. Maybe to call it free throw distraction is too much. We can just say it's there's some, you know, visiting team effect on free throws in college. So, you know, it is possible that these distractions do something at least in the college game and below. The question is just, you know, has Arizona State demonstrated that the curtain works? And that's that's sort of fuzzy, I think. You know, I don't know if social scientists have a word for this, but if he were to look at, and I think he has, every college and find some discrepancies, th- I mean, there'd be some noise there. You would expect of the 300-whatever Division One colleges, there would be a couple where, you know, second half visiting opponent free throws go down. You would, you would expect a couple to be outliers. But I give special credence when someone says, we are going to do X to get an effect. And when that effect happens, it seems to me I give it a little more credence. Well, what's suspicious about it to me is the fact that, you know, Arizona State is see is, you know, one of the few teams that seems to show this advantage. They're not one of the few teams that does crazy distraction. And I've watched the videos. I'm assuming you guys have watched the videos. I mean, this is a is a very distracting distraction, but doesn't strike me as being qualitatively more distracting than what they do at Duke or, you know, Notre Dame or Indiana or any other. They don't do anything at Duke, Dan. They play by the rules (laughs) down in Durham. No, I. but honestly, I do think at the big crowds for the free throw shooter, you have craziness going on, but it's just undifferentiated noise. They could process that as just a whole bunch of stuff that's going on behind the basket. Sure. But when you have one sketch going on, Every once in a while, it wouldn't surprise me if the guy caught it out of the corner of his eye and it had an effect on him. Like, it just seems that the one sketch behind the curtain has a chance of registering, somehow registering to the free throw shooter. And that alone, kind of no matter what it is, might get the free throw shooter a little bit out of his rhythm. All you want to do is register on that guy's consciousness. Well, Josh circulated the video from from Duke's Speedo guy distracting a North Carolina player, Jackie Manuel, back in, what was it, uh, 2003? 
and made it seem as if there was some tremendous effect in this one instance. And Jackie Manuels uh, was interviewed for a video on ESPN saying, yeah, I saw the guy. It was funny. It distracted me. So maybe, yeah, you're right, Mike. Maybe in particular. Jackie Manuels, 50% free throw shooter. 50% free throw shooter, though. So maybe he's easily distracted. I also ran the numbers. And last year, Arizona State opponents shot better facing the curtain than they did um, not facing it. This year, Arizona State opponents have shot worse facing the curtain than facing away. And Did the guy in diapers do his sketch last year game. or this year? I mean, come on. And then if you combine them over the last two years, Arizona State opponents have shot about 1% worse facing the curtain than facing away. This is very small sample sizes. Um, as Mike says, it seems convincing that it should work. But what this all points out to me, and I don't feel like I have the answer Something like this seems like very simple that you would be able to just look at free throws or just hyper controlled, even for sports data, which is generally really good compared to data in other fields. And free throws, you're just standing there and shoot at a at a fixed basket. That's like super good data. And we can know when they're not facing the curtain and when they are. And yet it's still super complicated to find out, Dan, whether this has an effect or not. I think there's like a lesson there about how we use data in sports. Yeah, I mean, can I give you Wolfer's argument, which I I found somewhat convincing? Mm -hmm. So he points out that if you look in college basketball in general, teams shoot better in the second half. That seems to be a rule. He sent me a study uh, of teams in the Big Ten where there's a lot of energy (laughs) expended on distracting opposing shooters. And uh, across the board, teams were shooting, visiting teams were shooting 2.6% better in the second half than the first. So what Wolfers is saying about Arizona State is he knows that even post-curtain of distraction, opposing teams aren't really doing that much worse in the second half. But he's saying that the advantage, the second half advantage that all teams have is getting wiped out by the curtain of distraction. So that's that's the case that he's making. You can agree with it or not, but I, I think I, I agree with him that the you know numbers that that we turned up that you know that ASU opponents are actually you know shooting about the same in the second half. That doesn't really disprove his point. But I agree with what you're saying. It's this is very tricky, and I think I continue to think ten years later that it's surprising how little of an effect this stuff has. If it has an effect at all, it's a small effect, and that's why I think it's so hard to find. I just thought that that the story in The Times didn't really address any of this stuff, um, and I thought that it should have. It didn't. It it made the case that Arizona State uh, opponents were shooting worse because of the overall free throw percentage. It didn't even account for the fact that they weren't facing the curtain in half the game. I just thought that that should have been acknowledged and the you know the case that he's making dan the fact that teams um shoot better in the second half and that advantage is being wiped out that wasn't explained in the story to maybe it was you were just distracted by guys in unicorn heads that is certainly possible all right dan what um is your final conclusion about what you would do tonight if invited by mark cuban or the arizona state athletic director to james dolan to orchestrate free throw distraction at a basketball game. You're in charge. What do you do? What do you do? Well, I did find this study of uh, Princeton home games where apparently the shooters don't really see any fans at all. There's just a big cavernous blackness 
directly behind the backboard, and apparently free-throw shooting rates are down. So that's my new idea. You distract the opposing players with nothing. You just have all the students in the student section just get up and leave. We are nihilists. We believe in nothing. All right. We will uh, post Dan's uh, piece on this. I think we'll also solve Deflategate just somewhere in the margin of that story, just like when he's rounding or carrying a two. Uh, Dan Engber, free throw distraction expert. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. So Dan, um, back when he did his free throw distraction for uh, Mark Cuban, his consulting, he got a report from a reader that um, the Mavericks mascots were involved, Mavs man and champ. And that in the NBA bylaws, team employees cannot be orchestrating the free throw distraction. But there is a mascot exception. I don't know if this nah, has been amended exception. in the last 10 years, but Mavs man and champ were on the front lines of the Ingber free throw distraction. You can get a meet and greet appearance from Mavs man or champ one or the other, for $350. I thought that was a pretty good deal. But Mike, guess how much, what's the upcharge if you want to get a Mavs man slam dunk performance? Oh, uh, you're going to have to throw a couple C notes in there. 200 extra bucks. And you're going to have to get insurance from SCA in, in Dallas. <laughs> uh, six, it's 600 you're right, a $250 surcharge. Um, so to call for pricing information, it's 214-747-MAVS. <laughs> And you can also book Champ or Mavsman to make a special delivery of flowers on a gift basket, maybe Valentine's Day 2016, anniversary, Mother's mm-hmm. Day, Father's Day. That's 214-747-MAVS. All right, Mike, what is your Mavsman slash Champ? I like the idea of the mascot exception. At first, I thought you were going to say that Cuban created an offshore holding company, you know, like Raptor or one of these to, you know, erase the paper trail. But then I was thinking maybe the Bush administration should have evoked the mascot exception in the Scooter Libby affair, right? No, no, no. It's okay. We get one. He's Scooter. He's our mascot. He's allowed to leak the name of a CIA agent. You know, you know the. It was a couple years ago before I had the uh, the old slate gist when I complained that I listened to these other gab fests and they could just endorse or cocktail chat about anything, right? Pants, the air. I think Plots did what was his favorite love song because you know that's politics. It's like we can't do that. We have to do sports. So what I did at the time was I analyzed the new season of Saturday Night Live, and now I'm just raring to go again on a topic that's not sports but has a sports veneer. And I realized, wait a minute, it's Saturday Night Live. I've already done this. There's something about Saturday Night Live and the interaction with sports. Now, there's the obvious thing that in their 40th anniversary, they broke down the signatures of the show. And all of them, to me, seemed really logical. The politics, weekend update, musical acts. And then they had sports as a signature, and that that didn't quite seem right. But investigating it, you know, as far back as 1979, do you know Bill Russell hosted Saturday Night Live? I did not. Did not. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that funny. You know, he definitely uh, won his cha- his 12th championship that day, working with the material he got. So I don't think sports, per se, on Saturday Night Live deserves quite the place that the producers gave it in that special. But I just love the rankings of everything, and it's like one of these great sports rankings, and a few organizations have come out with the greatest cast member. And to me, the discussion of greatest cast member, I've had this discussion, you can't do it without making sports analogies. Now, Rolling Stone came out with the list, and it's 
They started by saying the worst cast member of all time was Robert Downey Jr. And then right there, I think in second or third to last was Norm MacDonald. Maybe Colin Quinn was after Jim Brewer. Like Norm MacDonald was an excellent cast member. You don't give the guy Weekend Update for that long. And he was hysterical and is hysterical and did characters. He might even be in the conversation for one of the best cast members. Yeah, he's in the conversation for at least third team All-American. So I think this is the guy making the list, like on a sports list. If you want to rank the worst Knicks of all time, you might put Allen Houston as the worst. Like, what? He's a very good player. Oh, but his contract saddled them for so long. So this is, you know, trying to make something daring. I also noted on that list that, I don't know, the guys seem to overrate a lot of the women. Beth Cahill, 62nd best cast member of all time. Denny Dillon, 57th. Pamela Stevenson, 51st best cast member of all time. Ooh. Do you know any of these people? No. Are any of them in the firmament of SNL cast members? So this is what we do. And They're we're in like, the conversation for least uh, known cast member. Right. For people who may not have even been on Saturday Night Live, right? This is the Cap Anson, although there is a Hall of Fame. This is the ducky medwick. Like you throw it in there to show off your knowledge or how deep you are. But then when you get to the top, I think Rolling Stone. Oh, by the way, the uh, um, TV Those guys are in the Hall of Fame, Mike, Cap Anson what? and Ducky Medwick. They are in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe something like uh, Vic Rashi, right? You throw Vic <laughs> Rashi on the list as greatest Yankee pitcher of all time. Who's this Vic Rashi? Oh, it shows how much I know my deep knowledge. But then when you get to the top of the list, you have the real debate that takes on sports overtones. So this list had John Belushi as the best cast member of all time and Eddie Murphy second. And up there was Phil Hartman. And so I always say to my friends, I don't know, I might want to start the team with Phil Hartman, but you know what that's like? That's like saying, I don't know, I might want to start the team with Scottie Pippen, right? It's true, he could do all these things, but you really want to start with Michael Jordan. But then you have the conversation, hey, is Eddie Murphy more of an Allen Iverson, like just such a high usage guy, but doesn't necessarily make those around him better. I mean, think of his sketches, uh, White Like Me and the Gumby sketch and James Brown's Celebrity Hot Tub. You don't even think of him interacting with anyone else in those sketches. Now, you could also say, like with a lot of Iverson teams or with Kobe after all the talent left, you could make the argument like he had to carry it himself. That's what makes it more amazing. We'll never know what he could do with great teammates. And in fact, you know, we thought Joe Piscopo was a star when Eddie Murphy was there. And the Ebony and Ivory, Stevie Wonder, uh, Frank Sinatra sketch is an all-time classic. That's like Hal Neuhauser winning back-to-back MVPs and everybody else was in World War II. (laughs) But my point is that, to me, that argument is maybe a little like... um, a player would play with Jason Kidd and his numbers would spike, right? Keith Van Horn didn't have good seasons until Jason Kidd played with him. For a while, we were maybe like, oh, maybe Keith Van Horn is very good. No, he's not. So maybe that is an argument that Eddie Murphy really is the best cast member. The one time he got someone semi-talented, he made that guy glow. And I think the Phil Hartman thing is a lot like the guy who has really good deep stats, but he's just not the guy who's going to pour in 30. So I would I would sign off on uh, Eddie Murphy being Michael Jordan-esque and John Belushi, even though he was in John Belushi, maybe being a Bill Russell, right? A lot of great teammates around him, but stood out as uh, as the consummate pro. All right. Stefan Fatsis. I'm glad we resolved that. What is your Mavs man and champ? All right. As I mentioned earlier, I just binge watched the first four episodes of the second season 
of our favorite Texas youth football soap opera, Friday Night Tykes, on the Esquire Network. And I can report that despite the twisted priorities and atrocious coaching documented in season one, nothing at all has changed in season two in the Texas Youth Football Association, except that the junior Broncos are in the post-Charles Chavaria era, as the announcer says, post-Charles Chavaria era. (laughs) I was actually going to say Charles Chavaria. I don't know what it says about that show or about the name Charles Chavaria or about how memorable he is as a person Mm -hmm. that I remember that guy's name. Charles Chavaria. That guy stood out. All right, here are a few of my favorite uh, scenes from the new season of Friday Night Tikes. Marikas Goodlow, you'll remember the coach of the Colts who was suspended for the spring season. They play spring football in Texas, of course. Uh, he was suspended for leading his team in a chant of fuck the Rockets, whoop, whoop, fuck the Rockets. He's still cursing left and right and encouraging his players to go bust they damn head in. So not much change there. The champion outlaws have added coaches at every position. This both confuses the players and leads one veteran to say of the newcomer coaches, a bunch of overzealous motherfuckers out here who want to be more than they is. In one game, the team has flagged 15 yards because too many coaches are running onto the field. The Outlaws are up 32-0 on the Junior Broncos. They bring their first-string defense back in when the Broncos threaten to score in the final seconds of the game. I don't want these fools to score, one of their coaches says. I don't want no happy Broncos. Nobody wants any happy Broncos. All right, there's a new team in the show this season, the Lobos. They're getting crushed in one game. The offensive coordinator's son is carrying or passing the ball on almost every play. The dad of one player starts trash-talking the very annoying football mom of the offensive coordinator's son. Then the dad walks down to the front of the stands and shouts, tell him to stop fucking running his son on every goddamn play. The dad gets booted from the game. The camera shows his son on the field crying and saying, what's wrong with my dad? It is heartbreaking. After the game, the dopey Lobos head coach tells the camera, this is all for the kids. Then he fires the offensive coordinator and suspends the mom and her six other children from the stadium for three weeks. So they all pull their kid from the team. It is incredibly depressingly awesome. The Outlaws coaches encourage their players to bust up a new star running back on the Ducks. The kid gets hurt, possibly concussed, though he is made to keep playing in the game. The Outlaws coaches rejoice when one of the Outlaws players breaks an arm later in the game. The team gathers in prayer. A kid finally kicks the ball soccer style. This had been bothering me for a year. Too many toe kicks in this league. Another Outlaw, Juju Thompson, is concussed. His eyes go cross. A coach carries his limp body off the field. When he can't remember his birthday, he's placed in a neck brace and carted away in an ambulance. A Colts player who was concussed the previous season suffers memory problems and then is hospitalized with seizures. The Colts, though, put stickers on their helmet to honor him. Finally, the coaches of the Spartans succeed in humiliating Zoe, an overweight, lethargic girl who seems to be forced to play on the team. Are you part of this or not? The head coach screams at Zoe during practice. And then on the sidelines at a game in which she doesn't play a single down, Zoe says this. It's taking forever. I'm just standing here. Also back for season two is Kenny Long, the voice of the Typha radio network. I wanted to know more about Kenny Long and found an interview he did on a podcast called Crossroads on something called the King James radio network. A few nuggets. Kenny is a school administrator. He calls five games a day. He says that's much harder than doing Monday night football. He has to carry his own equipment. 
It's hard to get accurate rosters from teams, Kenny tells us. The host of the podcast, Corbett Thompson, asks Kenny, can you show your face in restaurants? And Kenny says yes. Corbett then asks him, have you received an offer from a network? The answer is also yes. I've had a couple that have inquired, Kenny Long says. Kenny is a staunch supporter of keeping his Facebook page clean, and he thinks Typha has it right. I'll let Kenny and Corbett take us out of this after ball. Typha's a great league. I love the Texas Youth Football, Football Association. If I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, they've got the kids first, and, that, and that's what our focus should be. Kenny Long of Typha Radio. Uh, meeting us at the crossroads to talk about you know some things uh, in the career of Kenny Long and then uh, some things Typho Radio, some things Friday Night Tights, a little bit of everything. So, Kenny, uh, thank you for, for 45 minutes here. Uh, I appreciate it and the continued success with the show. And, uh, you know, looking forward to season two. Thank you. If the keeps giving, Friday Night Tights, it's really great. Josh, what's your dog man? Mad dog? Mavs dog? Dog Mavs? Mavs man? Mavs man. Josh, what's your Mavs man? Don't forget champ. Uh, The Cricket World Cup has begun, and we'll talk about it in due time since it lasts about a billion days, if not years. In action thus far, hang up and listen Facebook page Cricket Play-By-Play Man. Tim Lowell reports uh, New Zealand smacked around Sri Lanka. Australia thrashed England, and the plucky Irish took down the West Indies. On Twitter over the weekend, I noticed that Jonathan Wilson, who's one of the world's best soccer writers, was tweeting about cricket, namely that a club he's a part of, the Authors 11, XI, is currently on tour in India. The Authors 11 Club, which was recently revived, dates back to the 19th century. It was founded by Peter Pan, author J.M. Barry, and featured such authors slash cricketers as Rudyard Kipling, H.G. Wells, Arthur Conan Doyle, P.G. Woodhouse, A.A. Milne, and Walter Rowley. The Authors 11 was alternatively known as the Allah Akbaris, a play on Allah Akbar, which Barry et al. believed meant heaven help us in Arabic, although it actually means God is great. It also has the word Barry in it, Allah Akbari, Barry. So why did they want to name the team heaven help us? Uh, the Wikipedia page on the club notes gently that Barry's enthusiasm for the game eclipsed his talent for it, uh, and it was the same for uh, most members of the Allah Akbari's club. According to the BBC, Barry discovered on the train to the team's first match that one of his players did not know which side of the bat to hit the ball with. I would have fit in quite well in this cricket club. In his book about the club, titled Peter Pan's First Eleven, Kevin Telfer writes that another player came to the train station prior to the game wearing pajamas. Telfer reports that Barry was not built for cricket or any other sport, really. Rather, he was a weedy fellow, a little over five feet tall, and not a man's man. But according to a Telegraph review of the book, he was a whiz at tiddlywinks, shuffleboard, and throwing cards into a hat. The team's only good player, Arthur Conan Doyle, who Barry wrote, was a grand bowler, knows a batsman's weakness by the color of the mud on his shoes. Sherlockian. Barry Uh, Barry wrote a book on the team titled Allah Akbari's CC, in which the website io9 reports he instructed his teammates not to practice before matches since it would only give their opponents confidence. And should you hit the ball, run it once. Do not stop to cheer. io9 also explains Barry's strategy for making his roster. With regard to the married men, it was because I liked their wives. With regard to the single men, it was for the oddity of their personal appearance. 
As far as the newly formed authors CC goes, Jonathan Wilson reports the team is living up to its forebears, losing its match in India on Monday. But by a mere eight wickets, they want to match J.M. Barry's ideal. They'll need to get much, much worse. That a mere eight wickets? Eight is a mere? I think so. It's not a big Did number. Did you add that? It's less than nine, more than seven. Did you assume that that was a mere? Based on his tweets, it seemed like it was a close okay. loss. Based on his tweets. We'd love your feedback from what we talked about today. Maybe that's a lot. Maybe that's a big loss. If this were the terrible biopic of uh, Barry, which has been done as a good biopic, <laughs> one of the team members would have a hook hand. The other would be named Smee. A bunch of them would not know where to go until a girl named Wendy showed them the way. Any Hollywood executives, please credit Mike Pesca. The idea can be yours. Uh, you can email us at hangupatslate.com for script ideas, anything else. We've got other links to the story we, stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our producer is Mike Bolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zomo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.